0: Welcome to Stacey on the Right, with your host, Stacey Washington.
1: Hey, Mr. Tugger. I just was curious if you agree with the stance, most recently supported by Senator Gilmeran to abolish ICE. Uh, I I, I have not had a chance to look at that. I don't know what it is. She, She was just saying that she'd like to see ICE abolished. I was just curious where you stand that way. That's not something else, but any time thinking about I, I, wanna, I, don't know, I don't have any information about it. I appreciate that.
2: So who were you just listening to? Well, it was a protester, a bunch of protesters. You heard the kids in the background, and they're upset about the situation at the border, and they're Democrats, and that reporter just asked them, what do you think about this, this idea of abolishing ICE? And he was like, that's something, that's something I'm thinking about. And he is really representative of most Americans. Yeah, they were able to manipulate some of the poll results to make it seem as if there's some big groundswell of support for uh, Americans to get rid of Immigrations and Customs Enforcement. But that's the same as asking, well, do you want to get rid of the police department in your municipality? Most Americans would say, no, nah, wait a minute now. Uh, What? I What are you, what are you asking? Well, what we're asking is, because ICE acts as the police department for the border, do we no longer need people down at the border making sure that at the very minimum some of these things are investigated and people who are coming into the country illegally are turned around? I already shared with you right here on the air the, uh, the horrible stories of people who are ranchers and own property uh, along the border, the southern border of the United States, and all the things that they have to go through, the horrors that they've experienced with illegal immigration coming in and, and, you know, people coming in and doing crimes, breaking into their homes, eating their food, you know, just, it's just really rough. And so, you know, when, one of the best things that can be done, especially for us as Americans, as we, as we look at where are we going, what are we doing? What do we believe about these things is to take it from the perspective of the natural order of things. It is not natural for a country not to have borders. It is not natural for a country to be forced to accept people in, regardless of whether those people, uh, you know, have, have any business being in the country or if they're applying for asylum or if they just want to live there because it's nice, because America is nice. Um, that, that's not, that's not normal. And one of the things we have to do is be, you know, as gentle as doves, but as wise as we possibly can be. We have to be informed. We have to want to know the truth about these situations. And we cannot be tricked into allowing ourselves to be manipulated emotionally, which is, it, that's that's part of the reason why I've I've had people, well, you've been kind of calm about this, or you seem kind of laid back when you were discussing this or that. The reason is because... So yes, I I get strong and firm on some issues and I definitely come out swinging on some issues, but that can't be the, the fervor and the tenor of the show every single day. People don't walk around in a rage all day, every day. If they do, it's because they have something wrong with them. And that's not an insult to you. That's just a statement of fact. We have opportunities to solve problems, but we can't do it when we're emotionally charged and we're out of control. So that brings me to, it's a very interesting story, and I teased it a couple of times that we ran out of time, so this is a great time for us to get into it, and that is Americans complaining that the Department of Education or Department of Energy regulations are ruining their dishwasher. So you got all of these regulations, rules that require washing machines to be more, quote, efficient. If that's not a government term, it's, it's totally been reworked into meaning something horrible when efficient used to mean, you know, an, a proper usage of, of resources in comparison with what's being expended. So the rulemaking to make washing machines more efficient required the manufacturers to increase cycle time to compensate for the regulations inability to effectively clean dishes. So you, you are not allowed to use as much water as you could use before. So they have to increase the cycle time where the dishes don't get clean. And so people have to run the cycle more than one time. And so a a couple who went to their parents' home who learned exactly how much nicer, older dishwashers are, they basically watched their parents' dishwasher quickly and efficiently clean the dishes, and the dishes all came out clean after one cycle, and they were wondering exactly why is it that your dishwasher works so much better than ours? It's because it's older, and the parents spent $200 for it, and the young couple spent $900 on their dishwasher. And the dishes still smell. They're not clean. And the the dishwasher runs all night long. So the Republicans and the Democrats all have their different ideas about what to do about this. My idea is pretty simple. Roll the regulations back. Go back to the era when the dishwashers were allowed to be made as efficient as possible by the manufacturers because they had to please the consumers and not the government. And voila, problem solved. Absolutely easy peasy. No big deal. Off you go. You're at the races. Everything's good. You know, doing, doing what we do best, which is leaving things to those who are closest to the problem. Problem with the dishwasher not working well? Let the manufacturer handle it because they know if the dishwasher doesn't work well and people are doing YouTube reviews about how much they paid for it and how it doesn't work right, that at some point people will not only realize that they've been duped into buying something expensive that doesn't work, but everyone else will realize it and their dishwashers will not sell. So you've got the protesters who are out protesting the separation of families, even though the president reversed the policy, and they're still out on the bullet train to crazy town. This time, the Nebraska Republican Party's headquarters in Lincoln, Nebraska, had a window thrown through it, a brick thrown through the window last night. Republican staffers found a spray-painted message beneath the broken window that said, Abolish ICE. And in the photographs, you can see where they threw the brick through a a plate glass window, and it completely shattered the window. And then they spray-painted in red, Abolish ICE, on the sidewalk below. Now, Democrats, such as Maxine Waters and others, have been whipping up support for abolishing U.S. Customs and Immigration's enforcement. But this is not how it gets done. ICE was established by Congress, not by the Republican Party of Nebraska. So you can break all the windows you want, you can vandalize, you can do whatever you want, but it's not going to cause Congress to change their minds about whether or not ICE should exist. On another note, though, I have to say it's kind of interesting to watch Democrats advocating for the abolishment of a federal agency because they're the ones who um, are always saying that the government is good and getting rid of government agencies is something that conservatives do to distract away from the fact that they don't want to help people. I just find it hilarious. So speaking of all of the different things that are going on that, that are kind of roiling the Democratic Party as we see them kind of morphing from Democrats into socialists, you've got this Arizona Democratic Senate candidate who was endorsed by New York Senator Chuck Schumer. And she's saying she's running for Senate. She wants to replace Jeff Blake. Um, Her name's Chris, Kirsten Cinema, And she's the Democratic nominee running against the person who's going to replace uh, Jeff Flake. He's retiring at the end of this term because he's not conservative. Um, she says she's not going to vote for Senator Chuck Schumer. So... Senator Chuck Schumer would want to be the majority leader in the Senate, and what she's saying is if they take the Senate back, she's not going to do it. She's not going to vote for him. So before she even announced her candidacy for the seat, Schumer had quietly offered his endorsement to the fourth-term representative. She became the first politician to represent the newly created 9th District, which covers vast areas of the Phoenix suburbs, and this happened in 2012. Now, Republican Senator John Cornyn of Texas has doubted that Sinema would hold on to her commitment against Schumer. He says, I don't have any doubt about how much she would vote as a member uh, as the Democratic conference when she gets there. In other words, she's going to vote for whoever they put up. I think this is just something that's in vogue right now as some of the louder voices become uh, more readily heard. The The louder voices being those young socialists who are now vying for control of the party These same young socialists who were emboldened by Bernie Sanders, these same young people who were educated in school systems, controlled by the Democrats, they were taught that America is bad, capitalism is bad, socialism is good, and even though they're the children of immigrants that the the one, Ocasio, uh, she's the child of an immigrant family, she's she's a success story. Her parents are success stories. They are the epitome of the American dream, coming here making their way, successfully educating their kids and now living in this country and being a part of who we are. And now they want to tear it down. And, and that's the rub here because all you're getting is promises of free stuff. I mean, let, let's, let's think about this for a second. What are the democratic socialists really promising Americans? First of all, what are the democratic socialists? Well, they're their own little group. They are a multi-tendency organization of democratic, socialist, left, social, democrat, and labor-oriented people. They're often affiliated with other political parties, such as the Democrats. They are a member of the Socialist International from its founding in 1982. Now, they voted to leave SI in August of 2017 over... The S.I.'s acceptance of what the D.S.A. perceived as neoliberal economic policies. The D.S.A., Democratic Socialists of America, they have their roots in the Socialist Party of America, whose most prominent leaders include Eugene Debs, Norman Thomas, and Michael Harrington. Now, these are the same people that were bombing different areas of the United States, police stations, et cetera, back in the 1970s under Bill Ayers and the Weather Underground. They're also the same people who joined together with Occupy Wall Street and now are closely tied and affiliated to Antifa, which is a domestic terror group here in this country. But if you're wondering how they've been able to grow, how they've been able to go from around 6,800 members just a few short years ago to well over 25,000 members now and 100 new chapters across the country, well, you can look no further than, first of all, Bernie Sanders, who has offered them legitimacy by claiming their party and by running as a Democrat for the presidency, which he never should have been allowed to do. And we all know hindsight's 2020, but I remember at the time when Bernie Sanders said he was running, it was him and Hillary Clinton. And I was talking to some of my family members about it, who are Democrats and, you know, but still kind of conservative people as we blacks are known to be. We're very conservative, but still voting for the Democrats. And I remember distinctly sitting at the table at Thanksgiving and one of my family members saying, um, yeah, it's Hillary all the way for me. And I said, oh, no, Bernie. No Bernie Sanders for you. And a laughs of derision rose around the table. And almost in unison, you could hear people saying, he's a socialist. Democrats aren't socialists. He's a socialist. He does, um, we're Americans. We don't believe in socialism. And I kind of sat back in my chair. I had to put my ham, my fork with my ham on it down. I was like, wait you guys realize he's running as a Democrat. And they're like, yeah, he's no Democrat. He's a socialist and I'll never vote for him. Now, that may have been the mood at that table with, you know, obviously I'm black, my family is black. um, And obviously socially conservative and very economically conservative, but very, very much Democrats, dyed-in-the-wool Democrats, lifelong Democrats. And they were really, they were scoffing at me because I was taking him seriously. They did not take Bernie Sanders seriously. But the Democratic Party did so seriously that they rigged the election for Hillary Clinton. Because they figured that these children that they've been educating to love socialism might actually do more than just dance around with a little bit. They might go for it whole hog because that's what they've been taught to do. And the children I'm talking about are the now adult millennials, 18 to 34. They've been taught in school that America is the devil, that Palestinians really deserve their own piece of Jerusalem and should split Israel in two and take half of it for themselves. They've been taught that gender is not what's between your knees, it's what between, what's between your ears. And they've been taught that being a Christian means being anti-science and that you shouldn't listen to your parents on social issues because they're old and archaic and they don't understand anything. Any wonder that they might be now flirting around with socialist ideas and that after they have flirted around, they're going to get right on in there and, and pony up and they're going to get rid of Schumer and Pelosi and all these other, quote unquote, old people. I mean, it's amazing to watch this happen. All right, when we get back, we'll have more for you. You stay right there.
3: I'm Will Addison. And I'm Miki. From Erring the Addisons on Urban Family Talk.
2: We'd like to invite you to the Marriage, Family, and Life Conference coming up August 17th and 18th.
3: The list of speakers is amazing. We have Ryan Baumberger of the Radiance Foundation, Dr. Clarence Shuler of Building Lasting Relationships, Abraham Hamilton III, Pastor Bert Harper and his wife Jan, Stacy Washington, Lonnie Poindexter, Pastor Dexter Sanders, and we'll be there too.
2: There's a direct attack by the enemy on marriage and family, and babies in the womb are treated like political footballs instead of life. We want to encourage and equip the body of Christ to fight for the restoration of the family. If we can get our families on track, a lot of society's problems could be solved. The Marriage, Family, and Life Conference is from Urban Family Communications, a division of the American Family Association. You can learn more and register at UrbanFamilyTalk.com.
0: Up next, Carol Swain with two minutes to think about it.
1: From poverty to professor, from GED to PhD, a bold Christian speaking truth to power. Here's Carol with today's two minutes.
3: Hello, folks. Luke 9.25 says, What would it profit a man to gain the world and lose his soul? Recently, we've seen two very high-profile celebrity suicides. Suicide has become one of the leading causes of death in America. Those suicides of fashion designer Kate Spade and chef and TV host Anthony Bourdain came as a shock because our first reaction is to say things like, They were so successful. They had everything. Our society has so linked people's value to either what they do or what they have. I'm not sure if that idea came from an ad agency or what, but it's wrong. It's the wrong answer. If you're suffering from depression, it matters not how rich or successful you are in your career. In fact, the rich and successful can be more at risk of suicide from depression or other mental illness because they have access to any and all sorts of self-medication. Thinking the booze, drugs, or stuff will fill the holes being drained by depression and suicidal urges. Christians know that a hole in one's life that size can only be filled by the saving grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Self-medicating never works. Whether you're in the church or outside of the church, get help now because your life is worth it.
2: To learn more about Carol and the Carol Swain Foundation, visit Mswing.net
1: And make sure you follow her on Facebook at Professor Carol M. Swing and on Twitter at Carol M. Swing.
0: Welcome back to Stacey on the Right on Urban Family Talk.
2: Welcome back to the program, everybody. Stacey Washington, host of Stacey on the Right here on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Also, one of the co-chairs for Project 21's National Advisory Council for the National Center for Public Policy Research. And it's my pleasure to be with you today. I encourage you to go to blueprint.project21.org to find out more about our policy recommendations that we presented presented to the White House and uh, on Capitol Hill for improving the lives of black Americans across the country. And it is such an honor to be able to do that work in addition to having this show and uh, all of the work that I'm able to get done here. And so really, really happy to do that. Now, it's my pleasure to welcome first-time guest in the program. I hope to have him back often uh, for his legal expertise. It's Brandon Cooper. He's actually also doing some political work in addition to... Preparing to take the bar exam um, to be an attorney, he's the co-chair of the Maryland Black Republican Council, and he provides commentary on, on television in, in Washington D.C. and New York. And um, so, it's a pleasure to welcome you to the program, Brandon. Thank you, Jason. It's a pleasure to be on. Yeah, so I'm I'm really happy to talk to you. Uh, could you? We we kind of decided to discuss this here on the air, but I want to let you lay it out for the listeners. Um, what, what we're kind of advocating for here.
0: And in terms of uh, the appointment to the Supreme Court?
2: Yes, absolutely. So, it, yeah. so we, we don't have any one person that we're interested in, but we are interested in the Supreme Court pick and, and what goes forward from here.
0: Exactly. Um, if you remember back in 2016, uh, Trump really did something that was unprecedented. He provided a list of potential picks. Um, part of that was to shore up the conservative base heading into the November election. Um, and from that list is what he's used to pick uh, last year's appointment of Gorsuch and an amended list is what he's used to this year. And so unlike past presidents, he actually has a pretty narrow list of potential picks uh, that uh, commentators like us can look at, media, and even opponents <laughs> can look at to kind of gauge where he's headed. And so uh, based off that list, based off of chatter in the D.C. area, Uh, There's emerged probably a handful, five or so uh, top picks who are going to be considered for the appointment um, that's supposed to be announced in the coming week, uh, July 9th. Um, The White House announced today that they've met with four or five of those folks, um, some of the names that you may be familiar with. Uh, Brett Kavanaugh, he's on the Court of Appeals out here in D.C., um, and a few other ones that are coming up. And so we do have kind of a narrow list. And again, because he's given us, uh, pretty solid conservatives who've been vetted over the last, you know, two years. A lot of work has come from the federal society, which many of you may know as a, uh, one of the only leading conservative legal groups in the country. Uh, their executive director has been involved with uh, the appointment of uh, Roberts, to the court, Judge Alito, and Gorsuch last year. So he's heavily involved in the process. And, of course, the Heritage Foundation, which we know has our friend Cole uh, James now leading out here in D.C. And so those two groups combined with uh, the, uh, the president and his in-house counsel will be the ones steering the, the selection based off that list.
2: And what's so exciting about that, Brandon, is that this is just the fact that, and you just highlighted this, that the president took the unprecedented step of saying, you, you know, the inference is, you guys don't think I can make this decision because I'm not a politician. I don't come from the the ranks of the Republican Party. I haven't been a Republican my whole, you know, career in public politics. I haven't been elected numerous times and had this process kind of ingrained into me of how this is done. So what I'm going to do is consult with some experts, experts that are their credentials are impeccable, the Federalist Society and the Heritage Foundation. We're going to come up with a list and I'm going to present that list to the American people as a part of my platform that I'm running on. So when you look at my yep. campaign, you have this list. You know that's what I'm going to pull from. There are no surprises. And then when I'm elected, if that happens, there's this, this has already been taken care of. And the people who are doing the vetting and, and assisting with the process, this is something they've been doing for decades. And they've shown that they've chosen well on previous occasions, which I think set a lot of people's minds at ease. And it also takes away from the liberals the ability to say, well, he's just you know picking people for this reason or for that reason. He's really been very open about the process and what he wants from a Supreme Court justice from day one.
0: Exactly. And I would say, you know, I wouldn't put anything past liberals, but even with this list, they're still wrapping up the attack. Um, As uh, reported out later, earlier this week, there's an effort to spend about $5 million from liberal groups to try and impose uh, the appointment of replacement for Kennedy. They're obviously making the failed argument that they should wait until after the midterm election which has no precedent or no reason to do that. Um, but also, I take a point, I want to make sure I thank uh, Harry Reid very sincerely because <laughs> um, because of his uh, change in Senate rules back in 2013, that was the only reason why Trump is now able to make his second Supreme Court pick in less than a year and a half. Uh, the Reid rule back in 2013 changed the requirement from 60 votes down to 51. And so, again, if uh, all of the Senate Republicans vote just as they did last year with Gorsuch, Um, we'll have a new Supreme Court justice in time for the next term that starts with October.
2: And so, Brandon, you brought it up, and now we got to talk about it a little bit. And, you know, gloating's not Christian. It's not the right thing to do, so no gloating. But we have to just point out, you you just pointed out, we have to kind of highlight it a little bit more. Did Mitch McConnell not say, from the floor of the Senate, that the Democrats would live to regret this decision and that it was a mistake because it took away some of the rules of order that that kind of they're so closely tied to the Senate. It's like, you know, the Senate is not traditional. It's two senators from every state. It's, you know, it's the 61 votes. You need the 61 votes that you, you don't just a simple majority won't do it. You have to really reach across the aisle. You have to say to people, hey, you know, come alongside me on this. Here's why. You have to convince them. You have to do that arm wrestling and everything. And they took that away. Not, not Republicans. Democrats yeah. took it away. So the rules that they're living under, that they're chafing under, are of their own making.
0: Yeah, just like you said, I agree. I actually think that uh, when it was happening in 2013, I opposed it. Not just for partisan reasons, but I genuinely believe uh, that the power of the Supreme Court and the rules that they're making and the precedents that they're setting— we need more than a, a simple majority to affirm the justices. But at the same time, you know, you don't unilaterally disarm. Uh, this was a tool that we pulled out in 2013, and I definitely do not support uh, Republicans now universe- unilaterally reversing it. I do have hope maybe in one, some future point in time when civility is returned to both sides of the aisle, maybe we can go back to the simple majority to affirm justices. But these are the cards that the Democrats dealt, and um, we're playing. With them.
2: Yeah. And, and so let's talk a little bit about it beyond this, because I, I believe they'll spend the five million dollars. I believe they're going to literally mm-hmm. like rip off their clothes and set themselves on fire. They're going to do whatever they got to do to try to stop this. But they don't and have the votes. And are
0: targeting Susan Collins, who, you know, oh, uh, yes. we know is being a moderate. But in, in, all, in all honesty, I have no fear that she will do anything like a McCain <laughs> and pull uh, opposition vote. She voted for Gorsuch, and in addition to voting for Gorsuch, she actually went on the Senate floor and spoke highly in in, in for his confirmation. And so, I think uh, that she will not uh, waver and she will vote affirmatively uh, to support one uh, of the justices ultimately selected.
2: Uh, I sure hope you're right, Brandon. But what what about? So let's 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 dig into a couple of the nominees. Kavanaugh has been said, you know, to be a front runner, and then the female justice on the list. Um, yeah, Amy Larson. Coney Barrett.
0: Them, but Joe Larson is uh, from Michigan. She set up to meet with Trump this coming Tuesday. So, yeah, Joan Larson. And,
2: okay. And Larson. Okay. And then what about Amy Coney Barrett? She was taken through the process just a little bit before they chose Gorsuch. And she's a very strong uh, Catholic. She has a number of children, I think seven kids, um, great marriage. Yeah. And she's very, very pro-life.
0: Yeah, there's about four, four women on the list. And she's included. Um, Again, I'm a political junkie. I live here in the DMV area, the D.C. Beltway area. And so I just know that uh, she rose to prominence earlier this year because she was grilled uh, by Democrats. I think it was Feinstein, maybe, who were questioning and kind of mocking her Catholic credentials. And so she's on the list. She's definitely a contender. Um, But I do know that she is, um, because of her interaction with Feinstein, she is kind of not a controversial pick, but one that the Democrats could use a little bit more effectively in their messaging in the midterms. And unfortunately, um, that's the life of politics here in our nation what we're dealing with. And so I do think that may be a factor um, in that decision. But, again, she's on the list. I don't know if she's met with the president uh, this week. There's been about five or six. Um, but I do know that Joan Larson, another uh, uh, female justice uh, who Trump appointed to the Circuit Court of Appeals last year, and so she's already been confirmed as well. Um, I know she is definitely meeting with Trump later this week. Mm. Um, but there's a lot of good uh, female choices on the list uh, to choose from.
2: I'm hoping, well, I mean, not because they're females, but I think the Democrats are least effective when they're attacking women. I think, you know, it kind of really smacks of hypocrisy when they attack conservative women because they're always saying that there's a war on women and that Republicans are waging it, then they wage the most vicious attacks, as we've seen them do to Kellyanne Conway and Sarah Huckabee Sanders and other conservative women, I mean, just recently, because it used to be that Sarah Palin was the poster child for what they do to women that they don't uh, appreciate the the politics. But now they've gone even further with, uh, with Sarah Huckabee Sanders. They have a real appetite for savaging her, and she's been able to withstand it. And I think they're going to do the same thing to any female conservative who is put forward for this role.
0: Yeah, optics definitely matter. We have to understand that while I don't think there'll be a huge uh, chance of the confirmation failing, this is happening in the context of a midterm election. There'll be an election maybe a month or so after this appointment goes through. And so that definitely is something that's on the mind of the president, in particular, Republican strategists here. Um, in D.C. as we're trying to make sure that we keep the Senate majority uh, so that other future justices, um, that we'll talk about a little later, uh, who may be appointed years down the line, are also uh, appointed through a Republican Senate. And so having that context in mind, you're 100% right, um, anticipating that they're going to keep this fight, the Democrats, going on through the midterms and are going to try to use the Supreme Court in the way that Trump used the Supreme Court, I think, to rally his face um, in 2016. I think Democrats will try to do the same playbook. I don't think it will be an effective playbook. I definitely think, as you mentioned, understanding the optics of this fight, uh, appointing uh, another female justice um, won't be a bad thing at all.
2: So let's talk about that. Um, after this appointment, and I, I do believe I, I, I just heard the steal in Mitch McConnell's voice when he announced that a vote will be taken on this nominee after they're put forward by the president on the 9th or the, the, the candidates will be named on, and then they'll go through the process. And then he'll, one person will be nominated. One person will go through the process. Uh, they're going to have a vote. I don't think Mitch McConnell is going to allow it to you know fall to the wayside. So at that point, we're going to move past this. We'll have the November elections. And then you've got Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who is quite elderly, and the possibility of even one after her, which could possibly be Clarence Thomas, which would be you know, an amazing thing to see after his career on the Supreme Court for him to retire as well. It's unprecedented. One president, possibility of yes. at least two, three, possibly four justices. Uh,
0: yeah, exactly right. So uh, Justice Kennedy, I believe, is around 80, 81 years old this year. Ruth Kader's Lindbergh is 85. So you're 100% right that um, many people were uh, asking her to retire under Obama, mm-hmm. strategically, so sure that he had a pick. Um, but they all knew that Hillary would be the president, and here we are in 2018. You're 100% <laughs> right. Um, you, know, you never want to um, talk to those prospects, but it is a reality of the court. The average person will last on there for about 30 years, um, and, and Luke Heddenberg is beyond that or approaching that. So she's definitely one, to she won again, uh, Clarence Thomas. Um, he is one that's, I think, the second most senior justice on the court at this moment, um, and so he also is one who would more likely so strategically resign unless than being forced out, similar to how Kennedy did. And uh, Trump said in his statement earlier this week how humbled he was that Kennedy decided to resign under Trump, which kind of signaled that he trusted Trump to make a replacement that would not you know, be detrimental to the courts or to the country. And so in addition to looking forward to seeing you know, potential that Trump has, you know, at least one more term or if not another a second term, six more years in office, there's definitely a high likability that there'll be one to two more Supreme Court picks. Um, And you're right. That is unprecedented for a single uh, president to make in modern times. Um, And I would say only technically that would be uh, Leonard Leo, who is the executive director of the Federalist Society, who has been at the right helm of Justice Roberts being appointed, Alito, Mm -hmm. Gorsuch, and now the fourth one for Trump. So um, (laughs) it definitely is unprecedented. And also we have some important... Abortion cases that are lining up that could possibly be heard. A lot of hay being made about abortion how it be reviewed by the courts. Justice Kennedy was often the swing vote to protect uh, or to protect the precedent of Roe v. Wade, and so changing the balance of the court with disappointment may have implications to some of the uh, cases that will be heard in the next couple of years.
2: Ah, uh, so much for us to talk about there, and and you will be back. I hope to discuss some of those cases because I've been watching them a little bit, and I think it's just it's very providential that they're in the places where they are, and that they could possibly pop up and and you know go towards the Supreme Court, and they would then have to take the decision: do we take the case? Do we hear it? Do, you know, they'll they'll decide. But to decide with a court made up of six conservatives, wow, that's yeah. uh, that's. Yeah. In That's one, of the, be
0: uh, in one of the abortion uh, cases is a law that Vice President Mike Pitts signed into law when he was governor in Indiana. So that one is uh, one, one step below the Supreme Court and is likely to be heard uh, here in the, in the future. So I definitely look forward to coming back on and, and discussing this and more with you.
2: Uh, thank you so much. Well, OK, so fantastic. Great to have you with us today. Brandon Cooper, attorney co-chair for the maryland black republican council and frequent guest on lots of really great programs including this one thank you for being here today
0: thanks for being invite
2: all right we will talk to him again soon i am just so excited that we are gonna have some vacay time because we're gonna have the fourth of july and celebrate the birthday of this country which is something awesome that we should be praising god for i know i am so we'll be back with more after this keep it here This is Uncommon Moments. Here's former Super Bowl winning NFL coach Tony Dungy and his wife Lauren sharing from their book Uncommon Marriage.
3: After winning Super Bowl 41, I thank God on the victory podium. CBS announcer Jim Nance asked me about being the first African American coach to win the Super Bowl, and while I told him I was proud to represent so many coaches of color who had gone before me, that night was for Indianapolis. And I was also glad we won while doing things in what we believed was the Lord's way, embracing family and the things that truly mattered. That was special for Tony, for the Colts, and for us as a family. It was a reminder to me that
2: the Lord will bless whatever platform we happen to have, as long as we give it to Him for His glory. Tony and Lauren Dungey, authors of Uncommon Marriage, learning about lasting love and overcoming life's obstacles together. Discover more at CoachDungy.com. Coming next week on The Dwelling Place. Pastor Al Pittman continues to walk us through the Bible line by line and verse by verse to let God show us just how timeless His truth is. That's next week on The Dwelling Place.
4: It's time to call your senators. We need to tell them to put an end to the liberals' filibuster. Switch to a majority vote and defund Planned Parenthood. Call the Capitol switchboard at 202-224-3121 or go to afaaction.net. Senators respond to constituent calls. So call 202-224-3121 and tell your senators to switch to a majority vote and defund Planned Parenthood. Your call will make a difference. Stacey
0: Washington.
2: And so to this day, I don't even, I don't eat green beans. If they bring me a plate of food at a restaurant and they've substituted green beans for some other vegetable because the other vegetable is out of season, I will make them bring me a saucer and remove the green beans from my plate and take them off of the table because I cannot abide green beans. And so Chuck Schumer and the Democrats have to sit down to the table and it's loaded up high with green beans and they have to stay there until they've eaten them all. That's the table they set they boiled the green beans they picked them they snapped them they put them into the steamer they've cooked them they seasoned them with salt and pepper and now they're on the table with a little side of butter and that's all they're getting and they're going to have to eat these until they win stacy
0: on the right weekday afternoons at two central on urban family talk This is Stacey on the Right, on Urban Family Talk.
1: I'd like to update you on the progress we're making to advance the President's Iran policy. It has been almost two months uh, since President Trump announced our withdrawal from the Iran deal, and a little over one month since Secretary Pompeo laid out a roadmap for achieving a better deal. The Secretary outlined a clear and compelling vision for a better future for the Iranian people. This future can only be realized, though, if Iran meets 12 demands to become a normal country. Normal countries don't terrorize other nations, proliferate missiles, and impoverish their own people. As Secretary Pompeo has said, this new strategy is not about changing the regime. It is about changing the behavior of the leadership in Iran to comport with what the Iranian people really want them to do. A key part of our strategy is a campaign of maximum economic and diplomatic pressure. The first part of our sanctions will snap back on August 4th. These sanctions will include targeting Iran's automotive sector, trade in gold, and other key metals. Our remaining sanctions will snap back on November 6th. These sanctions will include targeting Iran's energy sector and petroleum-related transactions and transactions with the Central Bank of Iran. After leaving the deal, Secretary Pompeo and Secretary Mnuchin decided to create joint teams of senior officials to visit every region of the world. These teams were launched on June 4th and have already visited 13 countries in Europe and East Asia. Our diplomatic teams from State and Treasury are bringing with them a message of cooperation and coordination. Many countries around the world share our interests in countering terrorism, halting the proliferation of missiles, and promoting peace and stability in the Middle East.
2: Wow. That's what it sounds like when you have individuals who are willing to tell the truth about our interactions with Iran. And remember, the people of Iran are victims of their government just as much as the rest of the world is in trying to deal with a nation that behaves the way that Iran does. And so we have this, it's, it's. I'm happy to see it. I'm happy to see the State Department coming out swinging, saying the truth about what's going on with this issue. So um, I want to listen to the Netherlands prime minister who was in the country yesterday. He was... Uh, meeting with President Trump, he was had numerous meetings with the president over the course of yesterday. He was at the White House, and at one point they had a press gaggle that was invited into the Oval Office to speak with or listen to President Trump and the Prime Minister of the Netherlands as they, you know, c- kind of conversed a little bit. And the president was sharing, and then there were a couple of questions that he took, and then it was time for them to go. And we normally don't get to hear the White House staffers kind of, they have to yell at the press to leave and they just won't go. So the, towards the end, you're going to hear just a whole lot of crazy, but I, I want to listen to it because it kind of gives us an idea of what the president goes through on a daily basis with the press. It's number one.
4: Our immigration laws, which have been bad for many, many years, decades, and we're going to have them taken care of. Uh, but uh, very interesting, though, was my four meetings. We'll be, I'll be meeting with two or three more and we'll make a decision on the united states supreme court the new justice that'll be made over the next few days and we'll be announcing it on monday and i look forward to that i think the person that is chosen will be outstanding thank you very much everybody thank you thank
1: you, thank you. Thank you. over the next yeah, i'll
4: be announcing that on monday mr president monday uh, WTO's treated the United States very badly, and I hope they change their ways. They have been treating us very badly for many, many years, and that's why we were at a big disadvantage with the WTO. And uh, we're not planning anything now, but if they don't treat us properly, uh, we will be doing something. Thank you, everybody. Thank you very sir?
2: much. Please start moving everybody out. Let's go! Make your way out, everyone. Let's go! Come on, Time to go. Come
4: on, here we go. Thank
1: you, sir. Thank
2: And in that last bit of commotion, you couldn't really hear it, but the um the prime minister asks, "Is it always like this?" And he was kind of laughing because I guess he just couldn't believe what he was witnessing, that it was just that crazy to him. And I, I agree. The lady is literally screaming at the top of her lungs. And everyone who's there listening is kind of just, they're, just they're, not, they're not leaving. They're just not going are I guess they figure, you know, she can yell all she wants, but we're going to stay right here because we don't want to miss anything. And that's what the president goes through every single time he has a press, what they call a gaggle, which is where a bunch of the reporters come in. They have their cameras, they have their, uh, their notepads, their iPads, et cetera, and they're in there to catch whatever they can catch so that they can report on it. And I just, I found it to be, honestly, it was just shocking. It was just like, she's screaming, and they're just standing around. When you watch the video, you can see the people. They know they're. she's saying they need to leave. They can see her directing them to leave. And they're kind of looking past her and kind of trying to get past her to go in the opposite direction. And that was in front of a foreign world leader. Now, I get it. We have freedom of the press. The press is supposed to hold our government officials accountable. And a lot of what we see is... Uh, you know a function of that and and the adversarial nature of it they they were kind of adversarial with Barack Obama i i previously didn't think so but i went back and watched a bunch of videos of press briefings where the president's sitting there it was president obama and he's he's at the podium and they're asking him questions and he he gets a little exasperated with them and kind of lectures them like only a college professor can and and you know fine you know they 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 were adversarial with him too but I just, I have my own views of, of what's acceptable, and I think there should be some respect for the office, whether it's a Democrat or a Republican. And having that kind of respect, it governs the way people behave and the way people treat each other, and it makes it a better working environment. So, you know, it it's just the way that we should behave towards one another. I know that's not what we're seeing, um, and I know it was similar but not to the same degree under President Obama. That doesn't make it right. So it was just an interesting interaction. Um, So we talked about the Supreme Court. We've talked about so many of that, so much of that that's going on. I want to kind of dig back into this Democratic Socialists of America thing. And the reason why I feel like it's so important to do it today is because the 4th of July is tomorrow. Because we're celebrating our our independence from Great Britain because we're living in one of the greatest experiments ever known in uh, self-governance. So what is Democratic Socialists of America? According to their website, DSA is the major organization on the American left with an all-embracing moral vision, systematic social analysis, and political praxis rooted in the quest for radical democracy, social freedom, and individual liberties. And that's according to Cornell West. Yes. That guy is actually a democratic socialist. Barbara Ehrenreich calls DSA an organization that carries on a fine old tradition, old American tradition, the tradition carried on by Eugene Debs, Mother Jones, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and thousands more. I'm proud to be a member. Um... It's under who we are and what we do, democratic socialists believe that both the economy and society should be run democratically to meet human needs, not to make profits for a few. That's your, first, you know, that's your first bell ringer there. Look in Venezuela where they decided that profits for a few wouldn't work. They don't have anything for anybody. They don't have any food for anyone except those who are in leadership who are always going to protect their ability uh, to, to eat and to take care of themselves we are a political and activist organization, not a party. Through campus and community-based chapters, DSA members use a variety of tactics from legislative to what they call direct action. Direct action is protests, mixing it up, beating up grannies, that kind of stuff, to fight for reforms that empower working people. Now, I don't know about you, but I've not met very many wealthy people who don't work. And when I say that they don't work, what I mean is They work at whatever it is that maintains and expands their wealth. So this idea that only certain people work is another way of otherizing people who have more than one group and pitting people against each other. A political philosophy that pits people against each other is one in which, first of all, they're seeking to divide people for a reason. Because once people are divided and looking at each other askance, they can no longer unify behind common shared goals and ideals like The Constitution, individual liberty, freedom, you know, stuff like that. So you have a huge summary document. They have a national strategy document and then a summary. Um, They have what's called the Democratic Left, which is their blog and quarterly print magazine. They have Talking Union, the blog of the DSA's labor network. We have the Get Up Project, which is the grassroots economic training for understanding and power, a series of DSA fund popular education workshops, arming activists and organizers with the knowledge, tools, and skills to explain economics from the perspective of the 99% instead of the 1%. Oh, I bet you that's a bunch of malarkey. And then religious socialism, where they have a dove with a little rose overhead and the dove is red and it says religious socialists. Religious Socialism is a publication dedicated to people of faith and socialism. As our community grows, we will use it to connect DSA members and to reach out to the larger group of faith-based social activists and thinkers. We invite you to join us in making it useful both to people of faith within DSA and the wider religious left. Be sure to like us on Facebook, follow on Twitter, and contribute by sending short essays, commentary, and articles. I gotta tell ya. This sounds so normal, but it's not. What they're saying is they want to take apart the individual liberty-based system of government that has brought us to this place of economics, prosperity, and freedom. They want to take that apart and make us like what they call every other developed nation on the planet because those, those developed nations have the word socialism in their uh, titles. But those nations operate under capitalism and the means of production is not owned by the government. They have socialized medicine, but that is a function of the overgrowth of government and the people who have the socialized medicine don't love it, they hate it. So why would they want to bring that here? Because misery loves company. Because people are jealous and envious. Because when people see other people succeeding, the first inclination that some people have is to want to tear those people down instead of saying, you know what, I'm going to go get some of that for myself. I'm going to go work hard and commit myself to whatever it is that I'm doing and I'm going to earn my way into something great. And that's not always an easy proposition. It's not always something that happens automatically. It's not always something that even happens. We look at the number of people out there who said they're going to be single-minded about their goals. One, one person that always pops into my mind when I think about someone who's single-minded about their goals is Michael Jordan. And I know he was a basketball player and you know that, that's in the world of sports and entertainment. But he, there are some quotes from him that are really applicable to anyone who's looking around them and saying, I'm not as successful as I want to be or that person's way too successful, which is the wrong attitude to have. It's not about what other people have. It's about what you're willing to work for for yourself. And Michael Jordan said, uh, they were talking about how he'd made 10,000 baskets. And he said, yeah, but I've missed about 80,000 or some, some astronomical number. And he said that this, the thing that I have to do is I always have to keep trying. I have to keep shooting. And I, that has to be my number one activity is, is shooting baskets. And so he had some natural gifts and talents. Obviously, there were, you know, God-given talents that he possessed. But his number one rule of being was that he worked harder than everyone else. And he was single-minded about it. And through doing that, he rose to the very top of what he could do, the top of his career. And it's not just him. There are so many other people who aren't in sports and entertainment who have that same kind of drive and work ethic. To do well and to achieve wonderful things through their work. And so the Bible says God gives us the desires of our heart, that he, 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 he puts that spark in us. And then it's up to us to actually do something with it because God's not actually going to move our arms and our legs and do things for us. We have to chase it down ourselves. But when we decide, it's not about other people not having as much. It's not about other people having too much. It's about me saying, I want to do this work to the best of my ability. What more can I do? How can I go that extra mile? How can I have that great idea? How can I make myself of service? How can I make myself indispensable to my employer or my customer or whoever it is? When we start thinking like that, the ideals of an organization like Democratic Socialists of America could never be something that we would agree to. Take that with you into the 4th of July and enjoy yourselves. I'll be back with you on Friday. God bless. Stacey on the right.